Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Hebrews 4, we'll pick up in Hebrews 4 again today, where we left off, our imaginary chapter break, and we'll have another imaginary chapter break at the end of chapter 5, uh, but we'll pick up in verse 14, which says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we were yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace in the time, and help in the time of need. So chapter 4 is led up to a progressive set of kind of Greek syllogisms as it's built over the course of the book. Um, we left off on points uh, in chapter 4 that we have to be diligent not in our works, but we have to be diligent in our rest. That we have to find that place of not not falling away from the fact that coming to church takes work. You get up in the morning and you got to be there and it takes time and effort. Doing prayer takes time and effort. You got to set it aside. Take Doing worship, you actually have to choose to sing if you want to sing worship. Uh, and doing those things are things that are be about being diligent in entering God's rest. And then point six was God's word is a powerful ally in being diligent to God's rest. It's why we study the word every week. It's a tradition that started with the earliest of Christians. They took the synagogue tradition, they turned it right into Sunday church tradition. So we open up the book, we study it every single week, we at least get one Bible study in a week, but that's nowhere near enough. We should be doing it every day. So there's no creature, creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him who must we give, who, to whom we must give account. So now we get into who we have to give account to, and we'll pick up on this idea that started back in Chapter 2, verse 17, there's a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He mentions the high priest, but now we're going to dig into it. We're going to actually get into it in this layer, and then they're going to get into it again in chapter 7, right? So they just keep coming back around to this idea of high priest. Verse 14 then says, seeing then. So the writer calls us to look really carefully at our high priest. So we're going to get a study in Jesus today. Like, let's look really carefully at who Jesus was and what he means in our life. Um, this is the only place in the Bible where the word great is assigned to high priest. The adjective is stuck in there. And in the Greek, it's, it's almost like an, uh, an emphasis or an emphatic, our great high priest. Let's take a good look at Jesus and who he is. So they nor notably kind of put this role in here. The high priest throughout the Old Testament would put on linens. They had to be cleaned. They treated the high priest as a humble human. They had to go and offer sacrifice for themselves before they could get a, a sacrifice for the people. So just the being a priest meant nothing in the Old Testament. It was the garments that they put on, the, the burden that they had on their shoulders, the chest piece that covered their heart. Those elements were there despite their humanity. So when you say a great high priest, part of it is that this high priest is in and of himself something special. No, nowhere else in the Bible do we make that note about a high priest. The high priest is just human like us. But this high priest has passed through the heavens, verse 14. 
No other priest has done that. And then he names the high priest Jesus, the son of God. The idea of son of God is that he's God's heir. He has God's essence. He is God is where Hebrews is kind of going to build out that thought. So he's not just a human underneath those robes. He doesn't just have the, the gems of the tribes of Judah on his heart. He is the love for Judah. So we hold fast our confession back to this theme of being bold in claiming Jesus Christ. And we don't let go of this because it's the very thing that blesses us and the very thing that saves us and the very thing that gives us rest. No matter what, Jesus is our king. So he's our deity in chapter 1. He's human in chapter 2. He's our new covenant in chapter 3. And he's our rest in chapter 4. You see how the Hebrews is building up to this high priest idea? He's all of those things packed together. Verse 2 says we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize. In the Greek there, that's sympatheo. It's actually where we get the word sympathize from, right? It's the same root. It means to be touched with a feeling. And oftentimes I, I bang on feelings because we got a lot of that in our society right now. But there is a place for this in that Jesus can actually feel what we feel. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, he's been there and he's felt it. So to sympathize Literally in the Greek, they take that word from the path to suffer or literally to with suffer, to suffer with somebody. And that's our high priest. We have a high priest who's been exactly where we're at and he can suffer with us side by side. So there's a, a fairly rare double negative that they put in here. And I think we need to, typically this sentence in verse two would be, we have a high priest who can sympathize, but notice how they turned it to a double negative, which means the same thing. But usually when the negative gets thrown in, it's to negate an argument that's out there somewhere. In other words, somebody's out there arguing the point of the high priest is to sympathize and to, sympathize and to show mercy. That's why we have human high priests. So in the Old Testament law, in order to understand that, um, throughout the Old Testament, we had intercessors that would pray for people when they were in trouble. Abraham prayed for Sodom and got locked the heck out of there. Remember that? Moses prayed for the people of Israel and his face glowed and they begged him to be in between them and God. So the point of the high priest is from the human perspective so that humans don't have to deal with the almighty God by themselves. So there has to be a human that can sympathize with humans in order to be a high priest. So the argument against Jesus was, well, Jesus wasn't full. If he was God, then he wasn't human and a high priest has to be human. Can you hear the Pharisees making that argument? That, aha, aha, we got you. You, if he's God, he can't be a high priest. High priests have to sympathize. So that argument is there. If the claim is Jesus is God, then how can God sympathize with humans? It's a major problem in the whole setup, right? And, and it's one of those things where those early critics could come at it. High priests should suffer with us. They should be a with sufferer so they can make our case before God in, in an adequate way. So God himself would be inadequate to represent humans. Does that make sense? So that's the argument. So when we see that double negative, it's because they're arguing against that prevailing argument, again, that critique of Jesus. And then we get the, uh, then we, oh, this is just kind of cool. So looking still at verse two, or uh, verse, have I been saying verse two the whole time? Sorry, verse 15. I'm used to starting at the beginning. So there's an extra word in there, in the Greek. Uh, it, there's, there's no dynamai in my version. There might be in yours. Um, so there's someone who cannot sympathize. There should actually be a word in there. Someone who cannot dynamize sympathize. And the dynamize, again, the root word that we have for dynamite, 
So there's an explosive element to that sympathizing that needs to happen. Verse 15, chapter 4. We need a high priest who cannot dynamite sympathize with our weaknesses. It's a powerful element that has to be there. Or the ability to forcefully move something forward. To hear about an event is not the same thing as being there. Like, for instance, if you heard about the music festival from Stephanie, you did not feel the bass speaker's rumbling your clothing as the praises of the Lord went forth in Duluth yesterday. You just didn't. We can tell you about it until our ears turn blue, but if you're not there, you just don't know. And it's the same thing with a dynamite sympathy. A non-human high priest simply is just telling God about what we've experienced, but they've never been there themselves. And that's a major problem. So the writer of Hebrews is addressing that power, saying we do not have a high priest without the power to with suffer. He absolutely has the power to do that in the positive. Jesus has the capacity to powerfully suffer with us. And those of us that have suffered and know what dread feels like and you feel like you're drowning, Jesus actually knows that feeling. It's what he went through at Gethsemane. So our weaknesses is what we're talking about. God knows we're weak in nature because he humbled himself to that. In that sense, I think Jesus is more than just a human. Because when God has almighty power and reduces and humbles himself to our weaknesses, we've lived with our weaknesses our whole life. Like somebody who's born with a birth defect, they've lived with it their whole life. They don't know what it's like to have more than full capacity of others. So they've just learned to deal with it. So we as humans, we're born human since the day we were born. We've dealt with it our whole life. God knows our weaknesses because he's felt it much more powerfully. He's had something and then lost it and feels it in a, in a much more powerful way than even we do. So it was not in all points attempted as we were, yet without sin. Jesus lived fully human and fought all the same battles that humans do, but he had victories. That's the difference. So arguably, not giving in to sin for a lifetime, again, is even more temptation than we deal with. We give in to sin once in a while. We screw up. And if you think about it, sin builds over time. The temptation actually grows over time. Without the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word to reduce it, it's like a pressure keg that builds up. Jesus never released the pressure. He kept it until the cross. He never gave in to sin. So in some senses, he's dealt with more temptation than we even had, arguably, because he never gave into it his whole life, where sometimes we do. So he won those victories in very human ways. And what's interesting, I think about Jesus, and I'm just going to, before we go on to verse 16, I want to look at how Jesus fought sin. Because he never called on the power of God to remove the sin. It's interesting. He used his, I'm sorry, let me say that differently, because he prayed to call upon the power to help him with temptation, but he never used supernatural forces to serve himself, ever. When it came to his struggle with sin, he did it fully within the human capacity so that he could show us how to beat sin. So what were the key elements that Jesus had? Number one, he studied God's word. You guys know I pound on that every week. Luke 2.46, now it was that after three days they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. We find Jesus as a kid, that's what he was doing. What did Jesus do for 30 years before he started his ministry? He, he read the word of God backwards and forwards. In Hebrew, back, actually forwards then backwards. So this is what he grew up doing. We know he prayed. We see examples of his prayer life. He prayed, which is interesting because he's praying to himself. Why would he do that? 
And the only reason for Jesus to do that is because he had fully condescended to a human form and that prayer was the way for him to talk to himself. Imagine if you couldn't even think without using a capacity of prayer. He'd put a distance between him and him. So he prays because he's modeling for prayer, teaching the Lord's Prayer, and frankly, I think he'd condescended to humanity. He had to pray in order to talk to his own self. Mark 26, 36, he said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. He took time, he separated himself, he prayed, he asked for people to pray with him, he taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer, so he showed them how to do it. And the reason he's doing that is because, frankly, he's going to go on to be our high priest, and he wants us to be his priesthood. Like, we're in training when we, when we pray, every time we pray. He fellowshiped with the disciples. He lived with them for three years. Lisa, if she were here, would say we should be doing that too. Um, that's something that is absolutely part of how Jesus lived. He just lived with his other believers. John 5, 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus kept all of the feasts. I think that's significant because eating is important. Eating well together is a way in which we share a bond of life together. And something has to be sacrificed for us to eat, especially the barbecue we're having today. And it's an important thing that Jesus kept the feast. He fellowshiped with people. So he, used, he prayed, he used God's word, he prayed, he fellowshiped. He, number four, he worshiped. And I think this is important. And it's one of the things Satan loves to get us to not to do it because we think people are hearing what we sound like when we sing. And honestly, you just cut it loose. Worship was a direct combat to ten- temptation for Jesus. It's what he used in actual fighting against Satan. Satan's going at him in the wilderness, and Jesus says, Away with you, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only will you serve. Like he knew what worship was, he knew how to treat it, and he knew that it was a sacrifice we give to the Lord, and it's how we serve the Lord. So Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses in Hebrews and our temptations, but he can't sympathize with our sin because he never gave in to it. And I think that's something to note. That said, at the end of his life, he, had, um, he was given an, an, an assessment of sin. He was judged by Annas. He was judged by Caiaphas. He was judged by the Jewish world. And by the secular world, he was judged by Pontius Pilate. All three of them declared him innocent and could find no fault in him. And it's marked in the Gospels. He never gave in to that sin because he combated it his whole life. That combating of sin is the work that's getting talked about in Hebrews. We read that and we think it's like doing good works. But the work of Jesus Christ was the combating of sin for 33 years while he walked on this earth. And when he died on the cross, it was finished. That release valve was finally done because death took him for three days. Then we get to verse 16. Let us therefore, because of all of that, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So this is another let us. And I love in Hebrews, it's taken us a long time to get to these directives. So you can skip everything we just talked about and just go to the let us and just do what it says. And not, you don't have to know the therefore. But let us come boldly to the throne of grace. I think this is where we emphasized the word of God last week. This is emphasizing prayer, coming before God in prayer, and just bowing before him and saying, Lord, it's all yours. So in its admonishment, when it says, let us do this, it's an admonishment that we need to approach him. We need to come before God. Now, to the Jewish reader, that would have been 
a shocking thing to hear that we come before God because we have a high priest. So the only ones that could come before God in the, in the temple were the priests. They're the only ones that could go in. And only a small group of those priests could go into the Holy of Holies and come in the presence of God. And it was the high priest that could go in and actually give that offering and do that prayer. So when he says, come boldly before the throne, that's an odd image for those Jews because that's only the high priest. But we're supposed to come because we have a high priest, we come before the throne. See the difference? So the veil's been torn. We go boldly. The word boldly there is proshirkama. Actually, it's three words in the Hebrew. It's proshirkama metaparisia, approach with freedom. Approach with openness, without fear. There's this idea that we, in parisia, that there's no circumspection. There's no intermediary. There's no other human. So he's emphasizing the idea that we come before the throne of grace because of a high priest, not because we are the high priest. It's a subtle difference from Jewish tradition, but one that Hebrews would have noticed really clearly. Right? Wait, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, not us. But they're saying, no, you can approach and you don't have to be circumspect and you don't need to go through another human. You can go directly to God. The Greek there is a definite article, just like in the English. It's not used willy-nilly like we do sometimes, but it sets aside a title. Right? We come boldly before the throne of grace. Put capital letters on that if it's not already in your translation. It's a definite article, the throne. It's a place of final judgment. The gate is where you judge day-to-day issues. The throne is where you judge salvation or not salvation. So when we come to that point of, of being judged, and we just got done in verse three, 13 of giving this account, we have to give an account for our lives and come before a throne, we're supposed to come boldly even though we're sinners. This is where the king makes his ruling. Oddly, thankfully, this is a throne of mercy and grace. Grace there, the word is charis. We name some of our daughters charis because he has sympathy for our weaknesses. He's seen it. He's experienced it. The word grace is not used in the book of Matthew anywhere. So that'd be an argument for this not being Matthew as the writer. However, the word grace is used 24 times in the Gospel of Luke. It's all over the place. That's an argument for Luke being involved in the writing of Hebrews. Again, I could go all day on who's writing this. Luke and Paul traveled together, and grace gets used in Romans all over the place too. It's an argument for Paul. The use of this word is unique to the writer as we go through the New Testament. But Paul and Luke use that word a lot, grace. We use that word a lot too. Jewish people had two thrones. There was the throne of the king, and there was the throne of the high priest, the mercy seat. The writer here then is introducing a new term that combines those terms. So when he says the throne of grace, the reason he uses the definite article is he's trying to introduce a new term to the Hebrews. There isn't the king's throne now and the the high priest's throne. There's one throne, and it's under one high priest king. And, And that's been combined in the new covenant. The throne of grace. Note that the Jews would then approach their altar for grace and they'd go to the throne for mercy. Mercy is only possible if the law's been broken and what is expected is understood by both parties. I've broke the law, here's what I got coming. David was in that spot where he broke the law with Bathsheba and he knew what he got coming. He knew there was going to be some punishment and some consequences coming. He, he asked for mercy, but he also knew that some of those consequences were good for his heart. It's 
bad standing with God because of a breach in the law that introduces the idea of mercy when God holds back from judgment. And he mercifully doesn't do it. That's why it says we may obtain mercy. You may or may not get mercy from God. Justice is coming. Grace is kind of different, very different, essentially different. Grace only operates when the law has been kept. So where we break the law to maybe attain mercy, we keep the law and God's standing then brings and showers blessings on people. That's why it uses the word find. We find the blessings of God when we're on good terms with him, which is great. We can obtain mercy and then we can find grace because when we obtain mercy, the slate's wiped clean. And that's when grace can start to bless into our lives. Or another way to say it is mercy comes from the throne of justice where we choose not to apply the law. Grace comes from the the mercy seat when God chooses to apply blessings, right? Or that we may obtain mercy. Mercy's not getting what we do have coming and grace is getting what we don't have coming. I've heard that one a lot, right? They're two very different things, but combine them together and you get the nature and the principle of God. God's not here to just punish people for no good reason. God is here to bring a heart that adores and worships him before the throne of grace. That's the purpose and the plan. You think of just this idea, and again, as English readers, we just read past the throne of grace, but it's a significant term that he's bringing in and introducing to Hebrews. It's a term that turns them from Jewish people to Christian people, and it moves them from one religion to the other. It's that big of an idea, the throne of grace. I just love this. He makes mercy and grace the same role, the same person, and the same high priest that administers it because it's a king high priest. And you get that. It's all contingent on coming boldly before. If we don't show up for God, then we just got the junk coming that's coming. But when we take every situation, good and bad, and we put it before the throne of God, we might obtain mercy and we can find grace. It's contingent on don't run from God. Stick to God as close as you get. When you're on bad terms with God and when you're on good terms with God, stick with him. Don't leave him. He's our help in time of need. He emphasizes that when it's not good with God, give it when there's time of need. Our time in need is in chapter 4, verse 13, when we have to give account. Like that's the time of need he's referring to. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Hebrews, why would you go to a human, flawed, high priest that's a human when you don't have to? Right? Again, he's trying to argue with Jewish people to dump this Judaism. Why would you ever go to a human high priest? They're worthless. They don't have eternal sacrifices. They have temporary ones. Go to the one that has an eternal consequence for you. So here's the qualifications of a high priest. Chapter 5. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, so this is the critique. How can a guy from the tribe of Judah be a high priest? Because high priests have to be Levitical. They have to be from the tribe of Levi, right? So this is a tradition that goes all the way back to Moses when God set aside the Levites as the portion of Israel that was sacrificed to him. They were given to him for his service. And they lived off of the fruit of Israel as a nation. As people brought their tithes into the storehouse, they, couldn't, they didn't necessarily have their own resources and wealth. But they weaseled their way into it by the first century. And the priests got to be fairly wealthy. Verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Priests are humans communicating with God. Prophets are God communicating with humans. 
but priests go this direction, right? Verse 2, he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he's required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he was called by God just as Aaron was. That's standard Jewish language. He's starting from where they live. Okay, those are the qualifications of the priest. He unpacks why the priest is needed. They are holy instruments of God. Exodus 28 establishes the, the Levitical priesthood, and they officiate the gifts and sacrifices. They're slightly different things. Priests represented humans to God as they did this. As fellow humans, in verse 2, could understand, they have compassion and they know weakness. That's what he just got done saying Jesus has. The breastplate covering their heart, the mantle or the burden is on their shoulders with the names of Israel on there, the tribes of Israel. And the high priest gives his entire life to the service of God and humans. Not partial life, all of life. From birth to grave, the Levites were given over to God. Verse 3, and these sacrifices are for us and for himself. Again, that point of they had to give, they had to amend for their own sins because they're not perfect just because they're priests. And they need to be called by God, verse 5. That's an important criteria as we go through chapter 5. Before the priest could do anything for himself, he had to do it for Israel. That's, or for Israel, he had to do it for himself. Um, that's in Leviticus 16 where that law is put in place. They offer their own sacrifices. They actually offer a burnt offering for themselves, which is a sin offering. So even the high priest had to offer that sin offering to cover his own sin before he could serve anybody else. So this phrase, ignorant and going astray, they're two different things. Uh, the people that would come to the temple would often come to the temple, and, and even if they were good, decent people, maybe not understand the ways in which they've sinned. Like even just thinking you're perfect, that's arrogance, right? And you're, now that you've got vainglory going on. So sometimes there's sins that we're ignorant of that get covered up, but then you also have the going astray, which is to know the law and do the opposite of it. Both of those are real. Isaiah 53, 6, we like sheep have gone astray. We need somebody to fill this role for us, so we go to the temple and we ask for help. Verse 4, this takes honor, or this, no one takes this honor. It's important to know that the high priest was human. God picked them, so it wasn't a human choice. And you'd say, well, if you're Levite and you're born Levite, then nobody's made a choice. You're born Levite. But God picked Israel. Then in Numbers 3, he picked the tribe of Levi. In Numbers 3, again, he picked the Kohath for the furnishings, the people that took care of the temple itself. And then he picked Aaron from that group. So the Levites were priests because God said so in the first place. He picked them. And that's the point they're making in verse 4. They didn't take the honor to themselves. They were chosen for it. So even Caiaphas, the high priest, he was put there not of his own volition, but because he was picked for it by God. God gave the honor, and he still does give the honor. That's the argument. So who, who is called? And they're coming to that point of who is called in verse 4 because the writer of Hebrews is going somewhere with that. Even the descendants of Aaron, if they presumed they were a high priest and did things outside of God's law, they got zapped, right? So even being born to Aaron didn't mean that God had picked you because typically it was the eldest son of Aaron in the line of high priests, but it wasn't always the case. So I think that he's making that, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was, there's a shadow in that verse there that Aaron had two sons, remember, that smoked the funny 
smoke, and God didn't like it, and he killed them. It's number 16, the earth swallows up the Kohathites that presume to take leadership of Israel. Saul is booted out of the kingship in 1 Samuel 13. Uzziah is zapped with leprosy, 1 Chronicles 26. People that presume leadership, they don't do so well when God puts them out of that position, right? So it's, it's a hard thing, and God picks people for those things. We can't go to God and presume that we're priests, can't do it. We have to be selected. Nor could Jesus assume that he was a high priest. It had to be given to him. So in what way in Jesus' life was he given the priesthood? Nadab and Abihu, that's their name. Leviticus 10. Abraham's kids. Or Aaron's kids. We have to use the high priest that God has called, not just the son of Aaron. That's the important distinction he's making for the Jews. So the sum of this is in verse 1, the high priest has to be taken from among humans, can't be a, an angel or a spirit, has to be appointed for the job, has to offer sacrifice for the job, has to have compassion, and he has to be subject to the weaknesses of humanity. Has to, it is required that they make that sacrifice for sin, and they can't take honor for themselves, verse 4. Those are the criteria. So as he, we go through the rest of this chapter, he's going to talk about how the fulfillment of those criteria have been made. Verse 5. So also, so, here's how Christ fulfills those. Notice that he doesn't use the word Jesus here, he uses Christ. And Christ in the Greek means anointed, that was our second criteria. So also, the anointed did not glorify himself to become high priest. He didn't take the honor on himself. But it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. So he's going to use the Old Testament to show how God has ordained and brought up the Messiah as high priest, and that's the qualifications being met. That's the argument they're using. So Psalm 2 ends with this line, just that reference he made there in verse 5. If you know Psalm 2, it says, Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So that idea that Jesus had to even put him tr his trust in himself as God as he walked through life. He had to do that. Matthew 3.17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. It happened to him when he was baptized. It's interesting today that in verse 5, they don't talk about the baptism with John. Remember the Holy Spirit comes down, dove descends, there's fireworks, there's a voice from heaven. You'd think that would be the calling of God, but it wasn't the calling to the high priesthood. It was the calling to the ministry. And it's not the same thing. So when the writer of Hebrews goes, they don't refer to the baptism. They actually refer to the begotting of or the, the making of a, high, of, of a person. John emphasizes this four times, but it's never emphasized in the Synoptic Gospels. So it's a, it, now that's an argument for John having some involvement in the writing of this book. Luke cites the same things in Acts 13.33. In Paul's speech while he's traveling with John, by the way, they make the same point. It's like John and Paul were talking to each other. God's fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. It also, as it is also written in the psalm, second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So using that phrase was an argument they used in the first century. It's part of their evangelical toolkit. They would say, God said, I have begotten you. So if God has begotten or made a son to be his own high priest, that is an anointing that Jesus didn't have to call upon himself. God did it for him. I know that's a splitting hairs point, but I think it's kind of interesting. Jesus never glorified himself. He never puffed himself up. So everything he did, he did out of service, 
and he didn't have to puff himself up because God the Father did that for him and did it in the Psalms. He did it back in the Old Testament. And with every prayer that Jesus makes and honors as Jesus walks through life, he continues to reinforce that Jesus is a servant on the earth. Every miracle. And he healed hundreds, if not thousands of people. So every single time that happened, the power of God was confirming that Jesus was the acting high priest. Confirmed at his baptism and at every single miracle. The final confirmation is when he gets killed on a cross after being judged innocent three times and then he rises from the dead. God basically says he will not experience the curse of humanity because he's not guilty of humanity. He never gave in to the sin. So from Adam all the way through Jesus, every single human being had fallen short of the glory of God. But when Jesus is killed on the cross and experiences that sin, he also gives sacrifice when he does that. When God basically says that that death will not stick to Jesus, it's, it's not going to stay there. He's not guilty of any of the things that humanity is guilty of. It says, he who said to him, for Messianic scholars, there are hundreds of pronunciations of Messiah in the Old Testament. Honestly, they're all over the place. This begotten, then, is the initiated incarnation of God. The resurrection is the fulfillment of all the requirements of Messiah. So that period of time as Jesus lived, those are his days. And the entire work or days of Jesus are the perfection. Look at verse 9. That's the perfection of the work that God did. And that's God's plan. God's plan was to complete this mission through Jesus Christ. Verse 5, born for it. Verse 6, lived as, and verse 9, resurrected into. This was the goal and the plan. It was the plan since the beginning of time when God pronounced the curses to Adam and Eve. I will raise up someday who will step on the head of Satan. I should have had the quote here. It's always been there. It's always been plan A. Levites were priests because God said they were priests. Now to deal with that point in verse 6. He also says another place, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Really interesting that they don't quote Genesis. Genesis 14, 18, there's this odd little mention of a priest, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which means peace, brought out bread and wine and he was the priest of the God most, of God most High. It's a really interesting thing. Abraham just got done with all this uh, dealings with uh, a battle that he has. And after the battle, he brings all his, his fruit and his winnings and he gives offering to Melchizedek. Well, who's Melchizedek? Where did he come from? And if this is Abraham, this is before Levi and the tribe of Levi was a sparkle in his daddy's eye. Like this is way before Levites. But there's a priest to the Most High God mentioned in 1418. Why doesn't the writer quote Genesis? Why does he quote the Psalms? So it's kind of interesting that he does that. The reason I think he's quoting the Psalms here is because this is where God says that the Messiah will be a priest forever according to Melchizedek. Again, the high priest never puts the mantle on himself. He never picks to be that person. Other people make him into that person. And God especially has to anoint that person or they're going to get frazzled like Nadab and Abihu. It won't work. So we have this immediate mention. So Melchizedek, the king of peace, the king of Salem, is confirmed by God in that it says that, and immediately after making this offering to Melchizedek, God makes a covenant with Abraham. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Same story almost. 
So to say the high priest has to be of the tribe of Levi is to deny Genesis and the other covenants. That means the Abraham's covenant wasn't worth anything. Right? So as a Jew, that's a hard argument to make. They're not going to cross that line because Abraham, though they, they emphasize Moses and the law of Moses, Abraham's respected and venerated by the Jews too. So the reference, and I, I want to kind of read Psalm 110 if you want to put your thumb in where we're at. Flip back to the Psalms. They're right in the middle of the Bible. Go halfway in the middle. It's interesting as he's, and again, this would stand out because he's not quoting Genesis. He's quoting Psalm 110. And because he's quoting Psalm 110, as a Jewish reader, you know, as a kid, or, you know, in little Torah school, I might memorize Psalm 110. They might even still know the tune to it. But these are things they would sing. So by referencing a song and a line from a song, I would likely remember the rest of the song too. And I think that's significant here, right? So if I say, we three kings, in your head, you're already finishing the line. It's just how the brain works. So that's what they're doing when they cite this Psalm 110 verse. Is they're citing a piece of a song. Frankly, this is, I think, the better reference. So listen to how this plays out. Psalm 110 verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness, in the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Like that's the... That's the power line in the song. It's the chorus. The Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. Powerful psalm with the point that's being made in Hebrews. It's an awesome connection. And it's why they used it to to evangelize to Jews. It's attributed to God in verse 1. And look at how this particular thing says, The Lord said to my Lord. It's a self-referential psalm. In other words, like, how does God talk to God, right? Which one's the God? And the, and the real, reality is it's like the Lord is talking to Jesus. It's part of this idea of a triune God. Also, like, in verse 5, it's himself saying to himself that himself will do something, right? So <laughs> there's actually three references here. It's a entity talking to an entity that his entity will do something for him. And the verse actually, if you really play out the language, there's three entities being treated as one person. It's awesome psalm. And that it reinforces the idea that Jesus is God. In fact, God talks to himself in the Old Testament too. Right? We talk to ourselves, people think we're crazy. God talks to himself, creation happens. Right? It's a very different situation. Uh, it uses the word according to, implying a day in which there will be a non-Levite priest picked. Right? There's, it's going to happen a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There's a future reference here. There's an order here. And this isn't an order of Catholic monks, but an ordering of something. Right, It's not a group of people. It's a, it's a structure of it. Forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The order of or the structure of how Melchizedek happened. So there's an ordering of it. Same manner as Melchizedek. And then the word in, and then includes the word Forever. How does a human ever fulfill the forever mandate? Doesn't. The human has to be eternal to do that. 
This is a great, like thinking of the point they're making in Hebrews right now, this is an amazing reference point to say, what I'm saying right now is also in the Old Testament. Or I like to think of it like this. This is the writer of Hebrews saying, don't take my word for it. Remember Psalm 110. This is an argument already made in Psalm 110. How else did Jesus meet the criteria of high priest? Every other way. So verse 7 and 8 is just a, like, Jesus more than met the criteria in all these ways. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The who in verse 7, we're still talking about Christ. That's the context of this sentence. Who had a season in the days of his flesh. There was a set number of days where God was a human, where Christ was a human. He offered up prayers and supplications. He didn't skip these things. So how does God offer up prayers and supplications to himself? And the reality is Jesus did that because it was a service, not a need, I think. That's the argument here. He offered up prayers and supplications. He prayed like a human prays because he's acting as a high priest. He's being an intercessor. He meets another criteria then. Uh, to do this and not be zapped, to offer up a prayer and a supplication and not get leprosy is a sign of God's approval, God's approving of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't go that way. The supplication there in the Greek, uh, I love some of the Greeks. They mash words together to make words, like when we do compound words. It's olive branch wrapped in wool, literally translated. That's supplication. To make an, an olive branch a symbol of peace, but it's wrapped in wool, which comes from a lamb. Like literally, Jesus offered peace, and he was the lamb that wrapped that offering. It's just a great word, supplication. Um, maybe it's even a word that's getting applied here in a, in a unique way. But Jesus is the lamb, and he carries out this symbol of peace. As of the order of Melchizedek, the king of peace. Vehement cries and tears. Wait a second. Did Jesus cry? Yeah, in fact, it's like the first verse we ever memorized. Jesus wept. Yes, he cried. Why do people cry? Because they feel horrible about something that's in front of them. It's when the tragedy hits. In fact, there's three occasions of Jesus crying, which is complete. It's a complete number. Lazarus, John eleven thirty five, 35. He, he mourns and he hates death and it makes him cry. In fact, some argue he's not crying for Lazarus. He's crying for Lazarus's family who's in just turmoil because it's two women and they lost the guy that maybe provided for him. So it could be Jesus wept because he can see the tragedy that's about to overtake this family. He cries over Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37. He just sees a whole city and they've gone astray and there's sin everywhere. And he just can't handle the idea that there's so many people lost. There's so many people that are going to go to hell. And he just overwhelms them. Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he cries again, Matthew 26, 37. And in that situation, he's not mourning other people. He's not crying over other people's sin. The reason he's crying in Gethsemane is up for some debate. Is he crying because it's just overwhelming? The sin that's on his shoulders now, what's going, what he's going through, the temptation he's struggling with? Saying, Father, if you be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So some argue that the prayer in Gethsemane, remove this cup from me, that if he's praying about the cross, then God didn't answer his prayer. So some people say, maybe he wasn't crying about the cross. Maybe he was crying, frankly, about 
the burden of temptation that he had been up there up to that point and removing the cup of temptation is actually to go to the cross and finish the work, which happens the next day. And so that idea, that idea is that God then answered his prayer. But either way, God says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he showed us how to pray. Lord, whatever you want. At the end of the day, my life is yours. This becomes a mystery. How could God consend, condescend into human limitations and then verse 8, learn obedience? How did God learn obedience? He's always been the one to obey. And as God as Almighty, he's never humbled himself in that kind of way. So the act of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the days of the flesh, verse 7, is this period where God's actually experiencing something called humility that he's never had to experience before because there's no reason for God to be humble in that way. But to humble himself is to actually have an experience. Well, how can an almighty, all-perfect, all-wonderful, all-whatever God ever learn or gain anything? And I don't think it's learning like he learned something new. But he learned obedience because he, as a humbled human flesh, he had to learn the obedience as a humble human flesh. God knows what obedience is, but he's, it's different to do it than to talk about it. So this concept that God's created, this idea of obedience, to him he does it in the flesh, and in doing that he is still sinless. So I think the writer intentionally mixes the pronouns here, just like in, in Psalm 110, and he, and he mixes them all up who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers of supplication, tears to him who was able to save him from death. You see all the pronouns? And it was heard because it was his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. So he's, I think, purposefully bringing out those keys because they, have, they ring like Psalm 110 does. And he was heard. That's the argument that Jesus' life even was in danger in Gethsemane, that he was trying to get through a period where those soldiers came, and he knew that there was a good chance those soldiers were just going to kill him in the garden. And maybe he was praying to get through that trial and get to the other end, in which case he did. So either way, he was heard because of his godly fear is the claim of Hebrews. It's a strong argument for option two or three of what Jesus was praying for in the garden. You can talk about that afterwards if you want to. But Jesus' purity is verified in that God worked through all of his prayers over and over and over again. Verse 8, though he was a son, that family nature of God is that God is one in and of himself and he's actually a family in and of himself. Holy to the Hebrews is obedience to the law. Even to a corrupt temple, that's why they kept going back to temple, is that for them to be clean, they had to keep doing the works of Judaism. And this is what they're trying to teach here. Jesus learned obedience, and obedience would have been going to the temple and humbling himself. He learned how to do that. But what is involved in obedience as a lifestyle, and what does that look like? If I'm not going to temple with my sacrifices, then what does obedience possibly look like? Philippians 2, 7. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and he found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That obedient to death is taking a Jewish thing, obedience, into a Christian thing and that there's one sacrifice made for sin and that's what Jesus did on the cross. So when Jesus learned obedience 
and he learned to go through to that cross, he was offering that sacrifice as our high priest. He offered himself. Remember the animal sacrifices back in the day were a substitute to begin with. Like the punishment of sin is death. And when a human sins, their death is what's on the line. So that animal sacrifice replaces the human. And Jesus just said, I'm not going to make a little fluffy lamb die on my behalf. I'm going to go myself and I'll give myself on behalf of the people that are in my family. For my part, I don't know. I mean, I'll confess to you guys, obedience to the point of death, that's kind of beyond me. Like, I'd be terrified. If I'm getting tortured, folks, and they're asking me to give you up, I'm going to confess right now, I'm probably giving you up. Like, taking the next fingernail out of my hand, I'm not okay with that. I'll just be like, I'll tell you right where Michael is. You can go find him. He can be obedient to the point of death. Like, I'm a baby that way, but Jesus, like, I struggle with this. I don't want to die. I want to cling to life for everything I got. There's times where I feel like the waters have been over my head and I'm drowning, and, but I'm stubborn on this. I'll swim to get to the top. I'll suck as much life as I can, and I'd prefer not to suffer. Like, I find myself praying wimpy prayers like, Lord, if I go, may it please be a heart attack. Like, may it not be cancer, right? Those journeys of suffering and death are torture. They're horrible. And, and that's just me. I'm kind of a wimp that way. We're blessed by many days on this earth, regardless of if they're good or bad days. I'll take them. Then the writer escalates, right? We move from the day-to-day -day obedience unto death, just a small thing. Chapter 4 had rest unto eternal salvation. Like we get this rest of God towards salvation, reason one to not be a Jew. And we get this high priest that was obedient unto death, like he carried out the duties all the way to the cross for us. That's reason number two to not be a Jew. And then verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. All right, that's just taking it up another notch. Not only is he a nice high priest in our day-to-day -day rest and in our promise of salvation, but he's our high priest in the promise of eternal salvation. He wrote the book. He's the author. Like, why would you go back to Caiaphas when you've got the author of salvation as your new high priest. Let's take the guy who raised from the dead. Verse 9 and 10 pivot everything on the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the calling of God, and it is the, perf the perfection of a salvation plan. Again, Christ was perfect already. God's perfect already. The perfected in verse 9 is the plan or the author of eternal salvation. It's that story. Now that story is perfect, and it's been perfected by Christ. We shake the curse of death. It's the ultimate hope we can, we can ever put our hope in. Ever. It's perfect. So there's two ways to shake death, right? And that's what they're laying out. Way number one was the Mosaic Law. Way number one is somewhat flawed, but here it is. To be holy and sinless, you got the curse of death, death which is justified, it's not possible to be held without cause. You can't be killed without cause. That's unjust. So way number one to not be killed is be perfect for your whole life and never sin. That's path number one. The Jews knew that. They carried that message for 1,500 years so that every Jewish person knew that that's path number one. Be perfect. Right? And the whole purpose of the priesthood was to dole out sacrifices to try to keep a status of perfection, which was a flawed program. It wasn't perfected. 
It wasn't ended. So then you get path number two. A sacrifice is given on your behalf by the head of your household. It's an atonement for the whole household's sin. One sacrifice, an entire household of people. Well, if we come into the family of God, that's a doorpost that has blood on it for everybody under the doorpost. And God's doorpost is huge. So the curse of death is already then paid for. It's then not just for God to dole out death because it's already been paid for. You can't pay for it twice. So salvation's guaranteed, absolute assurance and promise, which allows us to go boldly before the throne of grace. But you have to go before the throne of grace with the name of Jesus on your lips. Having been perfected, he became the author. You don't write things you don't know. That's number one rule in writing, write what you know. Don't write things you don't know. He became the author because now he knows what it is to be the sacrifice. The author of eternal salvation. You can write books. You can go to a Christian bookstore and get entire library sections on how to be saved. Many people write about salvation. Here's how I get to salvation. But Jesus perfected and authored it himself. He actually got saved. So regardless of every other book on there on ways of life and how to do it, paths, even my own opinion, like don't listen to me at all. Listen to Jesus. He's the one that wrote the book and actually knows what it's like to be raised from the dead. So if you hope to be raised from the dead, follow the guy who's actually done it. Everybody else is a poser. So all those who obey him, we don't just follow and listen to Jesus, we actually obey Jesus. So you hear it and you do it. Why would you go back to your old temple life, Jews? Why would you go back to offering sacrifices when it's already been sacrificed? It's a done deal. So assuming that the readers of Hebrews were obeyers of Christ, he's talking to an audience that has, is willing to read the letter, right? He's talking to believers in this sense. So he brings up Melchizedek again, repeating the point. A non-Levite Melchizedek was called by God and blessed, and the covenant of Abraham came right after a tithe to Melchizedek. In the same way, a non-Levite Jesus is called by God, resurrected by God, and the new covenant's established immediately upon his resurrection. Logic's simple enough? That's Hebrews. Then you get to verse 11. of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. I love this verse. I'm going to spend some time on it because I just think it's great. It's a great lesson for us. The writer of Hebrews is not nice to the reader. Like he's calling the reader dull. And you just, it's precious. Like no editorial team came in and said that's going to offend. We don't want to put that in there. Like there was no committee that went through and decided how to write Hebrews effectively. None of that. That is not seeker-friendly at all. And I love that. This is great. It says we have a lot to say. So Hebrews isn't the gospel. Like they admit it. We have tons to say about Jesus. There's lots to say. There's all the letters of Jesus. There's the epistles that are all over the place. There's, there's tons to say about Jesus. But what they just laid out, that simple doctrine of verse 9 and 10, like there's tons more to say about that. The power of Jesus is the confirmation of all of it. And it's a reference point because all they've gotten up to is that Jesus is high priest. And they're kind of stopping there as they go through this thread. And they're going to go back and build on the points prior to it. This is a reference to those 
that have heard the confession of Christ but think they still need to do sacrifices in the temple. This is, I'm going to apply it to today. This is to Christians who've accepted Christ and think they need to go back to doing good things to make God happy. Stop that. You're redeemed. God's blessed you. John 21, 25. And there are so many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I supposed even the world itself couldn't contain the books that would be written. Amen. If it's all about Jesus, there's so much about Jesus. Even the people in this room, we got stories to tell each other that we haven't told yet. There are volumes of stories about what Jesus has done in our lives that we need to be telling each other. And hopefully some non-believers are eavesdropping on us. Like, I love going to a restaurant and talking about Jesus extra loud so people in the booth next can hear all about it. Isn't Jesus great? And you can see him bristle, right? And we're in a restaurant hanging out with Danny for her new job, I think, or whatever. And we're just sitting there talking about Jesus, loving the Lord, laughing, being, you know, simple Christian people. And we get done and, like, we're like, is the waiter ever going to bring the bill? Like, we literally sat there for 30 minutes, like... You know, like we thought the waitress had just totally abandoned us as a table. And we're like, you know, at some point you got to bring the bill out, lady. Like we've been done for a long time. So we finally flag her down. Like, where's the bill? All that table that was next to you paid for you guys. They just wanted to bless you. We were like, awesome. That's great. So sometimes they bristle. Sometimes they cover your bill. I'll take the bristling over the, I'm so excited about the bill covering. Like now we talk even louder about Jesus. It's like the whole little restaurant room can hear us. You know, maybe there's some Jesus people here. I want to help out a poor guy. So we, the point in verse 11 is, man, this is just the highlight reel. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus as high priest. You don't even know all the things he did in his life that validated that role. Like the whole book of Matthew is what he's referring to. We have much to say, right? So we're the gospels, acts, the life of Jesus, our personal lives have added to that tally of things when God intervenes. The entire New Testament is a narrative on his story, history, right? It's all what God's doing. It's hard to explain. Like Christianity's not a bumper sticker. We can't just throw it on our fender and expect people to understand it. It's hard to explain. But notice here, it's, it's not hard to explain because it's hard. It's hard to explain since, since you've become dull. It's your dullness that makes it hard for me to explain this to you. I just love this attitude. I I think it's great. And it's not always the tool to pull out of our toolbox in evangelism, but it's in the Bible, and sometimes it's the tool. You know what? I'd explain it to you, but you're an idiot. You're too stupid. You like yourself so much, you think yourself is the plan of salvation. Good luck with that, dull person. I I just... Maybe I'm a mean person at heart and I love to see this tone. Hebrews isn't about the task of explaining the gospel. That's not what we're reading Hebrews for. We're, this is written for believers that already believe the gospel. The purpose of Hebrews is to talk to us about our life and how we stay on track, right? It's dealing with ideas that prevent Christ-believing Hebrews from obeying the call of God that he has for their life. They've accepted Christ, but they're not going on with that. You've become dull of hearing. Can I just keep reading that again and again? You've become dull of hearing. The word of God's a sharp and a two-edged sword. It's not dull. It's the opposite of dull. A sharp honed sword cuts right to the heart. A dull one doesn't. 
the resistant Hebrews have become dull. Uh, notice that too. It's not literal here. Obviously, this is about the heart. But they weren't dull to start with. They've become that way. Dull of hearing is not an issue of salvation, but it is an issue of Christians being in the word or not. Because if you're not hearing, it's because you're not hearing the word of God. So if you're sitting through a teaching of the Bible and it doesn't get through, I've actually sat through sermons like that. I got nothing out of them. That's a huge warning sign. If you go through a whole chapter of the Bible and there's not one verse that sticks in your head, something's getting dull in the Christian walk, right? And again, that's not, you know, I joke that that's an evangelism tool. He's talking to other believers. Other believers are dull of hearing, not non-believers. Some of the passion of our faith is in hearing the word. So it's not 100% on the teacher. Some of the Bible studies on the listener too. I like that myself. It's reciprocal. You have to be desiring to learn. It's not too complex for me to explain, but it's too complex to explain to somebody who's dull of heart and who's getting dull. For when the word of God gets boring, we should be really tuned into that, believers. Even a bad Bible teacher is better than a non-Bible teacher, right? It's like pizza. Even when it's pretty bad, it's still pretty good. And Bible teaching is kind of like that too. It's the mix of, in this verse, notice, we have much to say, volume, hard to explain, complexity, and become dull of hearing and unwillingness. The volume, the complexity, and the unwillingness is insurmountable. You're going to be a baby Christian forever if you can't get past those things, right? Again, they're all believers, but they're living in a way where there's no blessing in it. There's no rest in it, chapter 4. They approach the promised land, chapter 3, but they never get in, right? They've just said the prayer of salvation and they get nothing out of that life afterwards. That's so sad. And there's so much to learn. There's so much volume. It's so deep and rich. There's so much complexity to it. And there's so much that we need to be willing to hear in our life after we're saved. And then if we're not willing to hear it, we stop growing. Proverbs 28, 9. One who turns away his ears from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. If we stop listening, God stops talking to us. Last few thoughts. Jeremiah 10, 8. They're altogether dull hearing and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. When we start worshiping anything other than Jesus, we're worshiping dead stuff. And worshiping dead stuff makes for dead hearts. And and I'm guilty of this. I remember sitting in a church going, I don't need to be here. I'd rather be somewhere else. Whenever the heart does that, it's a simple formula for where your worship is. Like if you're sitting in the body of Christ with other believers, you're studying his word, and you're thinking, "Ah, I'd rather be somewhere else, that somewhere else is what you're worshiping. That's where your heart is. And, and Jesus would say, go be with that thing. Don't be in the house of God and not have your heart in the house of God. So it's our job to give our utmost for his highest. We cook the best food we can. We make the best worship we can. We teach the word the best we can. We minister one to another the best we can. Do everything the best we can, and that should be sufficient. It should be that the things of God are content for our heart. They're what we fill our brains and then what fill our hearts. Even when we get dressed up with tassels, our hearts can still be somewhere else. So when addressing the stubborn hypocrites, Pharisees that thought they were believers, 
This is what Jesus said. Don't give what's holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Self-righteous Christians are the worst Christians ever. They're totally destructive. And Jesus absolutely went at them. It's kind of the same tone as you guys are too dull. Right? And Jesus is like, don't... And he's talking about the religious folks. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Christians often take that verse and we talk about non-believers with it. The context of that verse is Jesus was talking to the people that thought they were the most holy. They were at the most elevated religious positions. Those were the swine he was talking about. Not unbelievers. Unbelievers, he's like, those people need a doctor. They need health. But with the Pharisees, he was relentless. He was unforgiving of those folks. There's no amount of clarification that helps somebody who thinks they already know everything. None. Even me, folks. Like, I need your help in that too. Also note that to be called dull is actually an insult. I think that goes without saying, right? Right? Sometimes as believers, the way we admonish one another is we call out things that are problems instead of being passive-aggressive. And we don't call them out in whole rooms full of people, right? If you're privately seeing something that needs to be addressed, you privately go talk to that person about it. But there is that idea that to admonish one another, someone, sometimes we get there. I like that in this last verse that we're going to do for today, because we're, we're going to draw another chapter line here. He goes on to another topic. I don't know why they put the chapter markers where they did on this. Um, but this dull hearing idea, the writer isn't desperate to get through to people. And I like this. I think, I think it's the idea of like, if you're looking for a prom date and you're begging people to go with you, like even if you're somebody that someone would go to the prom with, the fact that you're desperate makes it so they say no. Like, why are you so desperate for a prom date? What's your problem? And I think as a writer, they just avoid that tone by going, I could explain this to you, but you guys are too dull. And it's the opposite. What we have is precious. We're not desperate to get it out to people. We're responsible to get it out to people. But when you find somebody who's dull or they've got a wall up, I don't need to beg and plead. It cheapens my message. If I have something valuable, all I have to do is put, a, put it on a hill and shine a light on it. And people will come running to it if they recognize the value. If they don't recognize the value, they're dull. They're dull of hearing. They don't understand what's here that's so valuable. But when I beg people to take it, it's like I'm trying to, it's like my kids trying to give me a bad jelly bean. Dad, eat it. You'll love to eat it. It's good, really. Try it, Dad. And they get that tone in their voice. And I know, I'm not a fool. I know that what they're going to feed me is the puke-flavored jelly bean. And that's what sometimes we do when, we're, when we are desperate to give a message out. Right? We're supposed to share it, but we're not supposed to do it to the point where we don't have some boundaries or self-respect. When we desperately try to get people to listen, we're not trusting that the Holy Spirit does that work. We don't. We share something and the Holy Spirit has to work on their heart, right? We actually then offer something that's precious and beautiful, rest-filled, chapter 4, eternal, chapter 5. Man, I'm not sure that you want all that. Maybe, maybe you want your, you know, party lifestyle. See how far that gets you. Maybe, maybe sports get you there, but I get perfect rest and joy and entertainment, right? And I can watch sports, but my life is in Christ, if you don't want it, we have much to say, I'm not going to waste my time with you. I'm going to go talk to somebody who wants to settle in and gear up and get ready for the life. Right? Sometimes this reverse psychology is truth too. 
buddy, it's hard because you're not willing to listen. You ever meet a, somebody who's kind of a critic of the faith and they go after a single Bible verse and it's like they can't understand the rest of the Bible or the clear explanation for the verse? Don't get into foolish arguments. Don't bicker. You know it. I've shared it. I've done my part. God doesn't need you. You need God. God's not desperate. He's loving and he's inviting, but he's not desperate. There's a point where the wedding feast doors will be shut. And I don't think God has a lot of problems with that. If you got people that are using their free will to resist God, that has an end point to it. And I, I don't want to be anywhere near when the lightning strikes. It's hard because people choose dull ears and that's hard for us. I think it's hard when these are people we love and people we care about. But if what we have is inherently valuable, our duty is to share it with those people and share the simple version. And I, I think verse, uh, you know, verse 11 just has that right balance to it that's in there for a reason. It's so we can learn something about how to talk to people we love. You know, I can explain this to you. There's so much more to explain. I'd love to tell you all about it, but I can tell you don't even want to hear it, right? It's like when I'm dealing with my cousin sometimes, like, I can tell you don't want to hear it. I'm not going to sit and waste my words on you. When your heart's open to rest and peace and salvation, let's talk more. And you have your free will, and I have mine, and I respect that. But your free will's on a path to destruction, and I don't want to, I don't want to see that happen. What we have is valuable. We need to share it because it's valuable. We let God quicken the ears of the people that are listening to it. And that puts us in this mode where every interaction we have is an opportunity to see, is this person willing to hear the gospel? We're at the concert yesterday, you know, and there's this guy standing up front protesting. You guys are all going to burn in hell, repent, and all that sort of thing. And we're just going in to worship the Lord. And this guy's misquoting the Bible left and right. He's making up Bible verses. It was horrendous. And stuff's like, are you going to talk to him? And as we're walking up, I can see a guy. And, you know, God bless him. He's trying to have a conversation with this guy. And this guy's literally got a speaker on his hip so he can shout over you. You know, and it's kind of like, no, I'm not going to engage with this guy. He's wasting everybody's time. And frankly, he's the reason people run from Christianity. But he thinks he's holy. He's pharisaical. Beware of that leaven and don't be that ever, right? So, and then I go and I sit down at the place and this old guy sits next to me and he's sitting down and he's kind of a codger and we start talking for 15 minutes and sharing things and, and awesome conversation, wonderful guy. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, hey, I know a guy in White Bear. He's not a believer, and he doesn't, and, and I can't get him to listen to Bible studies or anything like that. And he's like, I'm going to see if he could come to your Bible study. And it's like the Lord fully intended for us to have that conversation. Who, out of the 2,000 people are there, I'm sitting next to the guy who's got an unsaved friend in, in White Bear that may be open to hearing the gospel. That's awesome. Can you imagine? It doesn't work like that. So I do want to engage with that guy, and I'm on a constant lookout for those kinds of people. They wrote Hebrews because they're on a constant lookout for Jews that are open to the, self, the message of salvation. But they also have this tone or condition like, if you can't hear what I've just said in chapters 1 through 5, don't keep reading. You're too dull of hearing. But if you have heard it and you are passionate about living a life in Christ, then keep reading. And we'll come back and we'll keep reading chapter 6 next week. Amen? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for a high priest by the order of Melchizedek. 
We thank you for just the amazing blessing that we know that you're a God that sympathizes with our weakness, with our failings. And Lord, you know the the struggles of temptation because you've been there. Lord, you know what grace and mercy look like and you brought them together into one throne. And we are so grateful for that. Lord, I'm so grateful I don't have to go to a human high priest because frankly, I don't trust their sympathy. I think they're corrupt. I'm so grateful that no one in this room has to go to me or some other human to get their confession done. Lord, that we go straight to you and that our high priest is, is perfected unto salvation. Lord, we go right to the author of who, who saves us. And Lord, we just come to you. Lord, we put our sins before you and we put them on an altar so that you can burn them up. Lord, we pray that you cast them as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, we know that we are struggling through life. But Lord, we give that to you. And whatever you want to do with our lives this week, please do it. Lord, help us to be constantly on the lookout for those that are ready to hear the gift of salvation and the plan. Lord, help us to even go out of our way to find those people, to evangelize without ceasing. Lord, help us to understand when to back off, when to use reverse psychology to draw people in. Lord, you, give, have us, give us wisdom in how we do things. Help us to be strategic about it because we love you. Like, help us to never devalue the message of salvation, to trivialize it, to make it pithy or small. Help us to recognize how powerful, how amazing the dominion that it has, the glory that it brings, and that we can do that, Lord, to your honor and power and glory. Lord, may you rule in our lives in Jesus' name. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.